BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And I am really happy you are listening here now on the very first episode of the James Altucher Show. We're going to have a guest coming up in a little bit, Tucker Max, the well-known author of Ask Finish First. We'll find out if it's true, if Ask actually do finish first. But first, I'm going to talk to you about what I want to accomplish with this radio show. Why am I doing this radio show? Who am I? So first off, I've, I've run hedge funds. I've managed money. I've built up and sold businesses. I've destroyed businesses so thoroughly you can't even find them on the internet. I've destroyed them so badly. I've succeeded. I've failed. I've gone up. I've gone down. I've been so depressed and suicidal over failures that it took me years of hard work to come back. And then I would lose it all again and I'd have to come back again. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that process, how uh, we as individuals can reinvent ourselves. Nobody's perfect. We always get this impression that everybody deal we deal with is perfect. We have the perfect boss or the perfect colleagues or everyone driving around in their cars is perfect. You see this on Facebook all the time. Nobody ever, put, nobody ever puts a sad picture on Facebook. They're always having a party and they're always like, you know, having a party and they're holding a glass of alcohol. You would, if aliens came down and landed on the planet Earth and said, okay, let's look at Facebook to learn what these humans are like, you would think all we do is party and drink alcohol. Now, I'm sure some of you guys do that who are listening to me, and power to you. I have nothing against that. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not what my life has been like. And most of my life has been one of sheer fear. And by that, I mean what we're all about to experience now that 2014 has started, which is that the media is going to get back to business. They're going to get back to panicking you getting you scared, getting you afraid. Why would they do that? For the obvious reason, because the only two reasons why you would ever pick up a stupid newspaper is either greed or fear, and maybe a little bit of Kim Kardashian, I don't know, depending on your tastes. So greed no longer works. We don't believe in greed anymore, for the most part, and we certainly don't believe that the newspapers can give us what we want. So fear is a reasonable reason to pick up the newspaper. So what they try to do is scare you as much as possible. And what I'm going to do on this radio show is the opposite. I'm going to try to point out how often everybody is lying to you. What I want this show to be about is how you and I can find freedom. And how do we find freedom? We find freedom by getting rid of all of the lies and the institutions that are trying to control us, whether it's government, education, your bosses, 
your colleagues, and yes, your family. It's never the neighbor down the street that's trying to control you. I don't give a shit about your neighbor. The people who are closest to you, they're the ones who try to get you to do the things that you don't want to do. So we're going to systematically go through all the lies, go through all the methods of control, and figure out how we can find our own personal freedom. And this very much has to do with the economy. Almost every aspect of the economy is layer upon layer upon layer of control. Right now, today, I'm going to discuss a little bit about the media and how the media tries to control you. Almost everything you read in the newspaper is either fear or greed. They have to do it. I don't blame them, and I'm not going to argue with them, because they're always going to do it, and they always have done it. But it's getting worse. The reason it's getting worse is because media as an industry is going out of business. It's being replaced by social media, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. That's another topic. But newspapers, television channels, news, all they want to do is panic you, scare you, so you keep tuning in to whatever the latest story they're trying to force on you is. I'll give you an example. One time I was backstage, uh, I, was out of, I was on CNBC and they said, hey, why don't you come on and see how this show is actually produced. So I go backstage and the producer says to me after a while, you know, all we're really trying to do here is fill up the space between commercials. That's all we care about is the commercials. And it's really true. So how would they fill up the space between commercials. They would have what they would call the Octobox, and I'm sure you've seen it on some news channel or whatever. They have eight people all dressed in their nice suit and ties, wearing makeup, and everybody's arguing with each other. They actually tell you, they actually whisper to you in the little, I don't know, headphones or earphones, okay, now start arguing with the guy. And they tell you what to argue. In some cases, not in every case, in some cases you come well prepared to argue. But all they want to do is scare you. So for instance, uh, Greece two years ago. This was supposed to be the debt that was going to spread across the Atlantic Ocean and bring down the U.S. economy. Some little beach in, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Mediterranean, was supposed to bring down the massive U.S. economy. And every day, the news would just keep hammering this. And the stock market fell like 20 or 30 percent because everybody got so scared. And so, of course, the media would hype it up even more. And then, I think it was six months ago, the latest one was, uh, was Cyprus. Uh, uh, Tim, who's the producer, um, am I even pronouncing it right? Is that how you say it? Is it Cyprus? Uh, I actually be believe it's Cyprus. Cyprus. And you believe it. I mean, uh, for all we know, you don't even know. Like, none of us know how to pronounce it. I can't even find that on a map. Is it in Europe? Is it in Africa? Is it in the Middle East? That's how ignorant I am. And you know why I'm ignorant? It's because it doesn't matter. Like, whatever happens on this little beach resort will not affect the U.S. economy. Another example, and this is one you're going to hear for the next one, two, three, four months. They're going to scare you with this, I promise you. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is going to default on some debt. They're going to say in the media that this is going to bring down the U.S. economy. I can tell you it won't. And in fact, I don't want you to think of Puerto Rico unless you want to, unless you're, happy, you're going on vacation there or you want to meet a guy or a girl there, whatever you want to do. Have fun in Puerto Rico. Four months from now, buy municipal bonds in Puerto Rico because it'll be so cheap because of the fear that they'll finally be worthy buys. But I don't want you to worry that Puerto Rico is going to bring down the world economy because that's where the media is trying to panic you. Another thing that they'll try to do over the next few months, they're going to keep on with the theme 
oh, the Federal Reserve is going to start tightening again. It's so scary. The Federal Reserve is going to start, is going to stop buying um, bonds or equities or all the things that they're buying. They're going to stop buying toys at the Toys R Us. And suddenly the U.S. economy is going to, is going to flounder and, and collapse. This also is BS. You know how I know it's BS? Not because it's my opinion, but because it's history. So if you look back at every single time the Federal Reserve has started tightening, and I'm talking about going back to World War II, every single time the Federal Reserve has started tightening, sure, the market would panic a little bit because that's what the media does. But then a year later, in almost every single situation, the market was higher. I mean, a great example is 2004. The, uh, you know, rates were raised from about 1% to 5%. What happened? Well, stock market kept going up. Stock market kept going up until November 2007. What happened in 1999? Uh, the Fed started raising rates in either May or June. Stock market went straight up for another year. Now, it doesn't mean that things can get bad later, but we're talking about right now. Nobody's predicting a year out. Just right now, I'm talking about when someone tries to control you and panic you, just sit on your hands. Don't let the panic hit you. I can go back to 1994. I can go back to 1982. I can go back to 1971, 1966. All these times when the Fed started tightening, in almost every single case, the stock market was higher a year later, or at least flat. Sure, it would dip a little because of the panic. Those are good times to sit on your hands or buy. But always ignore the panic. This is a critical key to success. Not success in terms of making money, but of course, this is an opportunity to make money. But success in terms of having freedom, of not letting the media dictate your emotions just because they want to sell an extra newspaper. So onwards and forwards, I hope you contribute to this, to this radio show. Send me emails at altature at gmail.com. Call in, uh, ask questions, ask me questions, ask anything you want. I'll answer them on the air here, and, and you know you could download the podcast and see my, see my answers. But onwards and forwards, we're going to go to our guest, Tucker Max, author of Ask Finish First. Tucker, you changed the entire publishing industry. Everyone knows who you are. I just wanted to welcome you on to the show, my very first show. Thank you, James. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, I was going to write a book at one point. Nerdy Jews finish first, but then people told me I would have to ask you for the copyright on that. Like, you finish first in everything. But you started it off with ask finish first, and I don't know, would you have been offended if I did Nerdy Jews finish first? No, I don't think that would have really infringed on any copyright I could possibly have, James. You know, kind of nerdy Jewish fratire. It's like me <laughs> hitting on girls and being rejected constantly. It'd be like the exact opposite of your book. See, but James, I always tell you this. You did finish first. You've got a beautiful, amazing wife, so you actually won that game. I don't know. You know, I have a feeling we both won, which is why we're here on this radio show to talk about all of our amazing successes. But, like, let me ask you this. You wrote these books. I hope they serve beer in hell was first. You changed the publishing industry. What happened? How the hell did you get that book published? Because I know you've told me offline that it was difficult at first. What, what did you have to do and what did you have to go through? So you're talking about Beer and Hell, right? The first yes. one? Okay, so that, if you were, people, it's kind of funny. People um, forget history very quickly. And I found that like, in the, even in the internet era where you can kind of go, everyone around remembers 2001 sort of in theory. 
except people forget because the world is so different that in 2001, Twitter didn't exist, Facebook didn't exist, MySpace didn't exist. The word blog basically didn't exist. I think that was maybe right when it was being invented and the only people who knew what it were were like Linux programmers and stuff. And the idea that you could be a writer on the internet was like laughable. I mean, that was, that was, that was more laughable than a book called Nerdy Jews Finish First. It was ridiculous, that, that notion. And um, so I graduated law school in 01, and, uh, and I'd been fired uh, from my first job as a lawyer, so I couldn't really Now, wait that. a second. How did you graduate law school? You actually went three years of classes to law school and graduated, like uh, James, A's James, or B's? James, I didn't say I went and to not class. just any law school, Duke University Law School, like the best in the country. Right, and I actually got a... You could sue people. I got an academic scholarship to Duke, too, which is kind of funny. But, James, I never said I went to class. I said I graduated. Okay, good. <laughs> They're different things. Uh, here's, uh, so here's a, like the secret about law school. Law school is really, really hard to get into and ridiculously easy once you get in. Uh, once you get there, they basically assume that you are a sort of nerdy, pedantic, like, uh, academic, and that you're going to go to class and you're going to do all the work. And they don't, there's no classwork, there's no homework, there's nothing. There's just one test at the end of the semester that, that your entire grade is based on. So I realized I, by first, by the end of, by second semester, I stopped buying my books. And I'm sorry, by first semester, I stopped buying my books. And second semester, I stopped going to class altogether because I realized it was totally worthless. You could just take the book out of the library, the textbook, two weeks before the exam, read through it, and, and do well enough to get a B easily. So that's how I graduated law school. All right, school. I'm, I'm signing up for law school tomorrow. I'm going <laughs> to be a lawyer. I'm going to sue you for the finish first tagline. <laughs> um, so anyway, so back, back to beer and health. So uh, in 2000, I graduated law school, and then after I'd been fired from being a lawyer, I went to work for my dad. And my dad uh, owns restaurants in South Florida, a pretty successful restaurant company. And he fired me from the family business in about six months. So, what did you do to get fired by your own dad? <laughs> well, um, it's a long, long story. But he'll tell you I got fired because I, um, I did things like, uh, I don't know, when I was, I was like a manager at one of the restaurants. It was one of my jobs. And, and, and this is one of the big incidents that he cites why he fired me. I, uh, I met some girl or whatever. Uh, it was eating there, and then by the end of her meal, she came and blew me in the bathroom, and uh, and I kind of wasn't on the floor for a while, and whatever, and nothing happened. It's not like the restaurant burned down; no customers were unhappy. No one even noticed. But it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, you can't get blowjobs in the bathroom from customers. This is so, so. Wait, you're saying this is the theory he cites? So you're saying that there's another theory? Well, yes, um, there is. So my dad is. Um, my dad's uh, he's a very much a baby boomer, so he's very much a narcissist, and he's you know his company is basically structured as a, a shrine to himself, and uh, and all the people that work for him are psychophants and, uh, and and sort of ass kissers, and and they're also thieves, and they're just terrible people who don't do a good job. And when I got there, I realized this, and and instead of being like really smart with corporate politics, I'm basically the opposite of that. So I I realized that all these people were terrible employees. And we're stealing from my dad. And so I told them, oh, yeah, I'm going to get all of you fired and I'm going to replace all of you with good employees and I'm going to do something with this company. <laughs> it should be done. And then uh, I did Spreading I your thought, charm throughout right, the business exactly, world. Exactly. Being an asshole, right? And, uh, a leader. Right. 
the funny thing is, I was totally right about the facts. And, and I thought because my name was on the door and I was right about the facts that I would win any battle that happened. But as anyone who's worked in any corporation knows, corporate politics are not about uh, what's, what, what facts are correct. They're about who has a better relationship and who manages those relationships better with the boss. And I did not have the better relationship, ironically, with my own dad. And so those people who I thought were terrible employees were, but they were much better at corporate politics than me, and they maneuvered well enough to get me fired. Like, for instance, the blowjob incident is cited by my dad as why he fired me because those people turned it into, like, a big deal uh, when it wasn't. And, uh, and they were able – they had my dad's ear, and I didn't, so he fired me. Yeah. And do you guys get along now? Uh, you know – we get along about as well as most people get along with their parents. You should try to hire him at your business so you could then fire him later. Now, uh, that's first off, like that's bitter and resentful, and I'm not bitter and resentful about this because the, I was upset about it at the time. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's one of those things where James, you write about this all the time. A lot of times, your biggest successes grow out of your worst failures, you know. And and the reality is, had my dad not fired me, I never would have had the courage to do I hope they serve beer in hell. I would have I would have run his company and maybe started my own restaurant company and it would have been successful and I would have made money and whatever. But I don't know. I just I people most people don't have the courage to start something new. And I wish I could tell you a story about how I did, but the real I did start something new and I did all this cool stuff. But the reality is I did it because in a lot of ways I didn't have any other options. I've been fired from being a lawyer and fired from the family business. So well, I, I want to talk about your, your writing for a second because everyone, I think, and even you sometimes refer to your writing as in the, the fratire genre. I actually don't like that. Like, I, I think your books are incredibly, and I hate to use a, a, an evil word, but literary in the sense that they speak a lot about honesty, about what young men go through in their 20s, and, and I think honesty pervades all of your books. But how did it get started where essentially people almost hated you for writing these books like what was going on in the publishing industry how did you how did you get through it well so i mean they're kind of two different questions why people hated me and how publishing worked so basically in 01 um uh, i sent out all my i'd written my my story, my book started as emails to my friends and so uh literally all, like the first five stories in i hope these are beer in hell and most of the the stories um in that book are, began as emails I sent to my eight best friends from law school. And what happened was those emails started getting forwarded around to other people and over and over. And like I started getting those emails forwarded back to me from other friends and other social groups, which was you know like a little bit ridiculous in a lot of ways. And so I, I sent them out to publishers because my friends were like, these things are really funny and you've been fired from your two jobs. Maybe you should be a writer and write these stories. And every publisher and every agent, everyone rejected me. And uniformly, there was not one person who showed any interest. In fact, like aside from the, the form rejection letters, I actually got a couple personalized rejection letters who were like, like someone took time out of their day to write stuff like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. You need to never write anything again, not even instructions on how to get to the grocery store, like like that. Like it and, was and, really and bad. Just, and just stop it right there. All together, how many copies of your books have you sold? Just uh, to, two and a half million. So two and a half million versus this guy giving you instructions never to write again. But okay, right. go ahead. Well, I mean, like, that's the funny part. I probably sent out a thousand queries, right? And assume that maybe 200 to 300 of them are actually read by a human being. 
These are people whose entire jobs are to find good things that people want to pay to read. And 300 of them whose jobs is to do this passed on an author who invented a new literary genre and sold 3 million books. <laughs> That's the publishing industry for you. Like, and now, and now we've, we've talked about this before, but like, I never see you write articles in GQ magazine, Maxim magazine, you know, any of these men's magazines. Like, why don't the men's magazines publish you? Well, that, that kind of gets back to the, the, the thing you brought up just a minute ago about why there was a big negative reaction to my writing from certain circles. And, you know, I didn't understand this for years. It took me a long time to realize this. But basically, and it's going to sound a little bit catty, but this is the truth. Basically, I don't write for GQ or Maxim or Esquire or any of those places, and I don't I get any sort of consideration as literary or anything like that from any highbrow publications because they all are, they're all jealous of me. And, and no, I mean, like, I know it sounds, that sounds like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, you're just saying that, you know, because, you know, you, they're not, they're rejecting you. But here's, here's, I didn't realize this. I didn't think that was the case at first um, until I started to realize who the editors at GQ and Maxim and Esquire are. And they're a bunch of guys who wanted to be me and to have my success. And they didn't and they can't. So they have to be editors at magazines and they hate me for it. And, I, dude, I didn't even believe that until – I didn't really truly understand that until my PR guy, Jeffrey Chasen, who works for Ogilvy, he – when he first came on board, I told him I thought this was why I wasn't getting any coverage in those magazines. He didn't believe me. And so he started pitching me to all the magazines and they all turned him down uniformly and he couldn't understand it. And one of his best friends – he's gay and one of his best friends is this other gay guy. I guess they dated or something. Not that all gay people date, but these two had actually dated <laughs> And, uh, and you always have to cover your base, it seems like every you got to make sure no one's going to call you out. There's Tucker again. No, no. He's, well, here's he's the gay baiting. I have no problem being called out for what I say on purpose, but I don't want to be mistaken for for thinking something that I don't think. You okay. know, um, like I don't I don't want like I may be an ass, but I'm not Phil Robertson, you know. And so uh, anyway, so so uh, Jeff uh, talked to his buddy who is he's an editor at, at uh, Esquire. And, 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 and he's like, well, look, he got, kind of had a few drinks and he's like, look, Jeff, here, I, 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 I was in the meeting where we discussed Tucker and I'll tell you exactly what went on. I've never seen these guys. And he was talking, I guess, about the other straight editors there. He goes, I've never seen these guys get so angry and upset at another man. He's like, they're all terribly, horribly jealous of him. They, they, they either see him as the jock that made fun of them in high school uh, who then came into their world writing and beat them at it, or they're pissed off at him because he did what they desperately want to do, which is be a celebrated best-selling author that gets girls. And so they they hate him and they can't like it, what they really he he actually was pretty smart. The way he explained it was what they really hate about him is that they can't argue away his success as being not them. Like they, he even said, like if Tucker was black. Or if he was old, or he was writing about you know something, some other subject, they wouldn't care because it wouldn't be a threat to their identity. But this is a dude who's their age, who did it outside of the publishing system and ain't no shit to do it, and didn't have to compromise himself and just did it his way and won. And they hate him because he's everything they want to be, but don't have the courage to be. And I was like blown away by that because like that was an even like more intelligent, incisive understanding of the situation than I had at the time. But that's what's going on. So let's take it a few years forward. And the publishing industry has radically changed. I mean, bookstores and book chains are closing. Amazon's larger than ever. And self-publishing has been, the stigma is gone. P 
people are self-publishing. They're self-publishing bestsellers. I mean, the Fifty Shades of Grey was originally a self-published book. Many successful books are originally self-published. What's happening now in the publishing industry, and how can people take advantage of it? Well, what's happening is that publishers, big publishers, Simon & Schuster, etc., mainstream publishing used to be gatekeepers. So they got to decide who became um, uh, an author and who didn't. And that's, that's actually, uh, my career is one of the last ones that bridges that time period between when, when um, sort of pu publishers were gatekeepers and, then, and when they weren't. It's like five years before, if I had tried to write myself in 1995 and send it all out, it would have all been rejected and there would have been nothing else I could have done. I would have just been an unpublished author. But in 2000, which is why, you know, prior to the internet, everyone said, oh, all the best people, are, you know, don't get published and blah, blah, blah. And they were, to some extent, probably right. Um, but prior to, to, you know, whatever, let's call it 99, 2000 and on, uh, there was the internet. The internet existed. So you had a way to reach people with your writing that you didn't have to have a gatekeeper for. And so... So, so did a publisher finally see your audience and then say, hey, we got to sign this guy up? Oh, yeah, of course. That's exactly... They're stupid, but they're not that stupid. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, I put my stuff up on the internet and it blew up and MTV came and filmed me for this one thing and, and they're like, my stories... This girl sued me and I won the case and my stories were all over the place and it was like this big thing and then all the, all the publishers that rejected me all came back and said, hey, we love to publish your stuff now because now we see how big you are and, and we want to make money. Um, so, but but what this is, that's a microcosm of what's happening in publishing is that it, the world used to be covered by gatekeepers and the gatekeepers are now gone. I mean, they're still there, but they don't keep anyone out anymore. If the gatekeepers all say no, you can just walk directly around them. There's no more fence. You know what I'm saying? And so anyone can publish anything. And what that means then is that publishers for years, they're all probably going to uh, go away or at least radically change because all publishers know how to do is they know how to sell books to retailers. They don't have any lists of their customers. They don't know who their customers are. They don't know what their customers want to buy, which is evidenced by the fact they turned me down. They turned Fifty Shades of Grey down. They turned, uh, I mean, almost all the best-selling genre-creating books over the last 25 years are, have all have stories of like 10 to 15 publishers turning them down. It's because the publishing system is totally broken and f***ed up. And all, it's all it was ever designed to do was to publish books that, that New York Upper East Side intellectuals and Upper West Side intellectuals like to talk about at cocktail parties and like to use to impress their friends. It was never about creating material that was interesting or compelling or valuable to real people. But well, now it's becoming that way. It's really interesting about the gatekeepers because, I mean, essentially the gatekeepers in every industry are disappearing. So what are some other industries where you think maybe the gatekeepers are going away? Um, there's so many, man. Uh, all right, how about restaurants? Like the rise of food trucks is proof that, like, it used to be if you wanted to start a restaurant, it took a lot of money, right? And so essentially the gatekeepers, whether they were tastemakers in terms of like, like uh, restaurant reviewers or whether they were banks or whatever could keep you out of starting a restaurant. And now all you need is uh, a six by five piece of land to park your food truck. And if your food is good, you can sell a ton of it and then start your own restaurant. And because of things like Twitter and Yelp, you don't need anyone's permission or you don't need the approval of any sort of tastemaker it's just real people eating your food and giving real reviews and telling their real friends. 
Um, that's one example. Restaurants are a good one. Uh, well, hell, how about radio right now, James? I mean, like, what radio, what, you know, CNBC or uh, whatever, WCBS or whatever big radio stations in New York, they're not giving you shows, but you have your own show right now. And it'll probably do really well because you're an interesting guy and you know interesting people and you'll have interesting guests. I mean, podcasts, like, all, there's all these huge proliferation of podcasts because there's no longer programming directors who are in the pockets of radio stations or advertisers who are deciding who gets on the air. Uh, I mean, we can go down the list. There's thousands now. now Software. One industry which you've gotten involved in lately, and it's it's really kind of a, a big change when I think of the title, Ask Finish First, and then I go into this, but you've been really involved in crowdfunding. Um, how's that industry changing? Uh, well, that industry is totally, totally... Um, it's actually changing. not changing, it's new. It's like yeah, a new it's, industry. it's brand new, but what it's changing is finance and startup uh, finance and how people... Entrepreneurship. It's fundamentally altering the landscape of entrepreneurship and, and of finance because... So if you wanted to start a company, it's, you know, I've been thinking about, I'll tell you, I'll, we'll, we'll break a new thought that I've been having over the last few weeks. I haven't written about or thought about with anyone else. But think about this, James. Think about the people in the 20th century from, just pick an arbitrary date, from 1900 to 1990. Uh, think about the types of people that started companies. Uh, they were, for the most part, um, either very rich and very well-connected, or they were extremely lucky or they were the type of crazy, uh, narcissistic, dictatorial, sort of almost psychopaths that had to have their own thing and had to have their own way and couldn't think of any other way. I mean, if you think of the great robber barons, most of them fit that, that mold. Um, and you think of, of what entrepreneurship looked like in the 18th and 19th century or 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries, that's what it looked like. Those were the people that started companies. And the, the general idea was that everyone joined companies. And I think mainly because of Silicon Valley and the huge success in the tech industry over the last 30 to 40 years, that, that has changed. And people realize that they have good ideas and that they can start their own companies and they can do it better than big companies, right? And so like, but the big problem the last 30 years has been how do you finance that? It costs a lot of money to start a company. Well, because of changes in technology and now changes in finance, it's extremely cheap to start companies. And that's really what, crowd, what equity crowdfunding does, is that it finds people with great ideas or great companies and it makes the cost of acquisition of money extremely low. So it enables great ideas to be started by good people who, don't, who aren't in this who aren't in this to, you know, to, about their ego. They're not, in com they're not trying, trying to create a new company based on their ego or based on, on some psychological issue they have or some incredible drive that they can't get over. They're just a good person who has a good idea. And, if you, and the barrier of entry has been lowered so much that now a ton of great people with great ideas are able to get into company starting, whereas before the barrier of entry was so high, only crazy people would do it essentially. It's sort of like being an actor or an actress used to be. You know, so it's, like if, it, it's sort of like there were two barriers of entry. So there was the high cost of technology, so it cost a lot of money to start, let's say, a tech company. And then there was also the financing, like you needed either a bank or a venture capitalist. So, so are, are, does crowdfunding basically wipe out the role of the bank and the venture capitalist? Uh, no, it doesn't eliminate them. It marginalizes their role and relegates them to late stage financing, which is probably where they should be. It used to be that venture capitalists' role was early stage financing, and they would take so much ownership in companies, and they would dictate such strong terms, 
that they would essentially ruin the company in a lot of ways. Like sometimes, not always, but a lot of times their, their concerns about getting an early exit or whatever were what, cre- were, what, what would di- dictate company policy. Whereas now, if you have a great idea, you can, you, can fi- you can raise money from people you don't know who believe in your idea very, very cheaply. The cost of acquisition of that money, the transaction cost, is so low that you can dictate better terms for you can get better terms for yourself. It makes you more flexible. You can get financed earlier, and so it allows a ton more people to get in, and it allows good ideas to get funded relatively rapidly to iterate rapidly. So they don't need to 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 go get money from VCs who dictate crappy terms. A good way to think about this is think about how. Uh, finance changes like laws, uh, 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 changes in, in bank lending laws in the uh, 30s and 40s were what kind of killed loan sharking. You know, loan sharking, people used to have to go to loan sharks to get, bank, to get loans because banks weren't available. Well, the rise, certain banking laws changed, the rise of commercial banks and, and banks all across America, like banks had to compete, so they had to give loans to more people with better terms. Well, that essentially put loan sharking out of business, except for illegal sort of activities, et cetera, right? It's the same thing going on with crowdfunding now. It's going to cause a massive boom in entrepreneurship and, uh, and in all kinds of, of, of areas. I think there's a guy you should – a book you should read, James, it's about this. It's really good. It's called Choose Yourself. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Very good plug for my own book. <laughs> um, well, let me, give, give me an example of a company you funded through crowdfunding. All right, I'll give you a good example. Metacast is a company that I found through AngelList. Uh, AngelList is sort of like the Facebook for for startups and 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 funders and, and angels and VC uh, or financiers to find each other. Uh, I, I found this company called Metacast that I really like. Basically, what they are is Uber for doctors, and um, and they they you know they get a whole uh, set of they connect patients to healthcare providers, mainly doctors. And it's just a platform connecting them. And I think our healthcare system is totally f***ed up and broken in so many ways. It's basically a sick care system. And then, you know, I don't even want to get into insurance and HMOs and Obamacare, whatever. I think the future of healthcare is connecting providers directly to patients and helping them sort of um, reduce that transaction cost. And Medicast does that. And I found out about them only through AngelList. And this is another industry where essentially the gatekeepers are going away because... Traditionally, I couldn't get to a specialty doctor unless my general practitioner would recommend that doctor. Yep. And now there's a, a ton of different platforms actually um, uh, that do this. There's ones that uh, I can't remember the name. There's one that specializes in special specialists, like they get you referrals to specialists. There's some that specialize in uh, in nurse practitioners. I actually fi- financed another company called Med to You in Austin, which is very similar to Medicast, except it's just nurse. It's primary care only and nurse practitioners only. So listen to this, James. So you go to the website, right? Uh, you get or you call them. For $88, a nurse practitioner will come to, come to your house. You get to schedule an appointment, 2 o'clock, right? She comes to your house at 2 o'clock. She does a full like eval of you, just like if you've gone to the doctor's office. She does you know, blood pressure, temperature, everything. If you need medicine, she writes the prescriptions because she's a nurse practitioner. They can write almost every single prescription a doctor can. Uh, she, she brings you like this little packet, this treat of like treat boxes. Like if you're sick to get well, it's got like organic chicken soup. It's got all this cough drops, all this cool stuff in it, right? That's great. I'm, and, no, I'm calling that right now. And then they follow up with you. She calls you up. 
you create a relationship with your healthcare provider, they come to your house. And it's $88. $88. They huh, come to it, your house. It, is there any regulations? Like, is there any laws about this? Or uh, well, I mean, it, all the normal laws that apply to any medical practitioner. Like, she's a licensed you know, uh, nurse. Like, she had to take all her boards, all her exams. All that stuff is normal. The only difference is that instead of – because – because there were so many gatekeepers in medicine, there's so few providers. So they can charge what they want and they can force you to take their terms. And their terms are you have to come to their office, you have to wait in the waiting room. And we've all been to doctor's offices. They're disasters, right? Well, well, what, what she's done is reverse the process. She's like, we don't have overhead because we don't have offices. We come to you. It's non-insurance. So she doesn't – you have to pay. It's cash pay. But like that way she doesn't have to deal with any of that sort of stuff. She has Square. So you just swipe your credit card right there with her or you can pay PayPal online. And she comes to your house. And she'll come back as much as you want for $88 a piece. It's amazing. So Tucker, basically it sounds like almost every industry, either the gatekeepers already been eliminated and companies like this are starting or the entrepreneur-to-be should start thinking of industries where they can get rid of the gatekeepers. Like that should be the goal now of entrepreneurs. Yes. Where, where, where can you go around the gatekeeper? Here's how you want to think about businesses. Um, and I think you talk about this actually. I mean not, I'm not trying to plug your book, but the reality is sure. you really do talk about this and, and choose yourself. If You need to think – if you want to start a business, it's very simple. Think how can I provide value to people, that, which usually means like providing a service they need eliminating a pain or frustration they have or in some way or another giving them something they want or something that makes their life easier. And if you can do that, especially if you can do it yourself without having, you know, having uh, having to like build a huge infrastructure, then you have a business. I mean, this girl is just a nurse practitioner. She's been practicing for like 8 years. She's really good, but she realized she realized she was working in doctors' offices for uh, uh, doctors, and she, she realized, I don't have to work for them. I don't need permission from a doctor to do this. I am a licensed health practitioner. I can treat anyone. I know what I'm doing. I just hang up my own shingle, essentially, right? Except instead of hanging up a shingle, she put up a website. She did all these sorts of things, and now like she's got all these patients. She's creating a platform to connect nurse practitioners to patients who don't want to go through the bullshit that the healthcare system says you have to. It doesn't, you don't have to do that. That, that system developed to, to benefit the gatekeepers, the doctors and the health insurance companies mm. and the hospitals. It doesn't benefit patients. But the world is changing now. Now if you can figure out how to go around those people and how to provide value, the gatekeepers, and provide value directly to customers, you can create a massive business. Yes. So Tucker, let's talk about your your what are you so you, so you're into the crowdfunding. What are you writing right now? Like where's your where what direction is your writing going? Cuz you're you're the type of person you're involved in lots of different things. You can't just do one thing. What are you writing right now? So right now the big project, I have two big projects that are going. Um uh, one of them I'm writing with uh, my two partners in my new company, uh, with Ryan Holiday, who's you know the director of marketing for American Apparel, and uh, you know wrote Trust Me I'm Lying. He's a big marketing genius, and uh, Niels Parker, who's like one of the big editors and um, screenwriters. We're doing a sure. Niels, by the way, edited my book Choose Yourself, and Ryan did the marketing for my book. So exactly. I have a very high. Uh, Praise for both of them. Exactly, and, and your book uh, was a bestseller, and everyone loved it. Still it was is super well written. Exactly, still is right. Um, so uh, the three of us uh, realized that we know more about book marketing than pretty much anyone out there, 
And we, we looked at all the stuff that was out there for book marketing and realized it was really bad. The books and the information, for the most part, all of it was really bad. So we're, uh, we got together and decided to write sort of the definitive guide to book marketing. Um, and uh, it's going to be a book first. And then we'll put that book out and then we'll probably end up doing maybe an extended video course or information course for people. Because um, Ryan already has a uh, – like we partnered up and we already have sort of a book marketing division of our company. But we charge you know $20,000 to clients um, and we're very expensive. But we realize that a lot of the information we have is extremely valuable and we can, we can put it all in a book. And it, it, it and help a lot of people, and obviously sell a lot of books. And it's not really going to trade off with our business. It's in fact, it's going to help our business because what what, we, what people who pay twenty thousand dollars are really smart. Like Tim Ferriss is one of our clients. You're one of our clients. You guys are really smart. You're not paying us necessarily for the ideas. You're paying us to execute these ideas and to help you like strategize, which is what we're good at. Um, but we can kind of take our general knowledge and apply it to the world and give it to the world and help people help authors do better. And so that's one of the things we're doing. The other big thing I'm really excited about, uh, if, in fact, James, I can give you another exclusive for your very first radio show. Uh, I signed, um, uh, me and Niels Parker are working with Jeffrey Miller, who's the premier uh, evolutionary psychologist in the world. And uh, Jeff and I met at an academic conference, and um, he told me this story about how his nephews, um, his cousins and nephews, he's got a lot of younger cousins and nephews in his family, how they use my books as informational sources for sex and dating. And I was mortified by this. I was like, hey, I, I use it as well, and I'm older than you. Right. No, no, no. I told, I said, Jeff, my books should be entertainment. They should be funny. They shouldn't be informational or how-to guides. I'm like, why would they do that? He's like, well, there's nothing else out there that kind of explains the world of sex and dating to young men. And I, I said, no, 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 no way, Jeff. That's not possible. And he's like, no, go look. I mean, like, that's literally his field of expertise. He's like, I would know, go look. So I went home and looked, and he was right. Everything out there that teaches men about sex and dating or about women is terrible. It's, it's either like the pickup artist stuff, which is just really scummy and sociopathic and manipulative, or it's just totally, or some woman wrote it, and it's like just ridiculous fairy tale or it's just utterly wrong. And so Jeff and I talked about what would the definitive guide to sex and dating for young men look like. And we realized that it was something that needed to exist, that we were uniquely qualified to write. So we've actually started working on this book. It's called Mate. And uh, it's going to come out in about a year. Uh, but we're, we started working on the, um, the website, which is we're going to have like an accompanying sort of information ecosystem that goes along with it. It's going to be called The Mating Grounds, and that should launch in about a month or two. And uh, most of the stuff in the book we're going to sandbox or put up on the website ahead of time. There's so much amazing stuff in here, James. It's really – once we dug into this, I realized, my God, like there's so much out there that's, that could help so many men be better with women. And very few men understand this information or, or know what, how to get it or what, how to apply it to their lives. So we're going to teach them. So I'm gonna those, have to. I'm gonna have to take like ten different IDs and like log into your site and ask all sorts of questions just to get my my just to get the knowledge. <laughs> James, you already married an amazing woman, so you don't need any more knowledge. Like, <laughs> well, like to tell me though, like so combining your knowledge with the evolutionary psychology, give me an example where they where they work together to give like you know one of these guys some advice. Okay, so. Um, well, I'll just run you through the absolute basics. And, and this is actually stuff that a few years ago would have been really good for you, James. So one of the, the, one of the fundamental premises that we teach guys is that women 
that it's, the way that the mating market is set up is that women choose men, right? And so your job as a man is you're essentially competing uh, against other men for good women, right? But the fact is there are a ton of women out there who are looking to connect with men. And so all you really need how to need to do is do a decent job at some basic, basic things. And then we kind of walk guys through this. So like things that you might think aren't important are really important to women. So for instance, shoes. Most guys wear shoes that are utterly repulsive and unattractive to women. And you think, like, I, I know I think, who cares about shoes, right? What do they matter? They're just a conveyance device so I don't get glass in my feet. Women look at them and women care. And, and well, our advice is not, Why oh, do they care? From an evolutionary point of view, why do they care? Uh, I'll tell you. Um, well, because women see shoes uh, as, they see basically everything you're wearing as signaling who you are. So a, a guy doesn't look at uh, – most guys don't look at clothes or shoes as signaling devices. To men, signaling devices are sort of uh, uh, size, um, power, um, you know, like uh, verbal abilities, all those sorts of things. They don't really look at, at, at sort of ornaments as signaling. Women do look at ornaments as signaling. And so whether you like it or not, women are judging you based on what you wear. And shoes are actually the biggest thing. After after basic cleanliness, like take a shower, brush your teeth, put on deodorant, which believe it or not, a huge percentage of guys need advice on. They need to understand that these things actually matter and that women – like if you smell, women are not going to be as attracted to you as if you don't smell bad. You know, Things like that, uh, believe it or not, like guys need. But the next I always is, thought they I always thought they liked my manly natural smell. No, no, James. <laughs> there, there are about three percent of guys who naturally smell attractive to women, and the rest of us need to take showers and put on deodorant. Um, but like, like so, leather shoes. If, if you here, we, we we actually did a study, a Mechanical Turk study of five hundred women uh, about this, and we, we 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 took like the top hundred selling shoes on Zappos and ran and had women rate all of them and got like like all this feedback on it. And it's so funny, man. Uniformly, women say any guy that wears basically any type of leather shoes is automatically like 20 to 50% more attractive because leather shoes to a woman signal that you have some fashion sense, that you care about your, your appearance, that you, um, you have some sense of what looks good and that you have enough resources and enough uh, aesthetic to be able to make those decisions. And they don't have to be expensive. They don't have to be the nicest ones. It can be Timberlands. It can be anything. Like, there's a huge range. It can be, you know, $40 uh, basic leather loafers or whatever. Uh, if you have those as opposed to tennis shoes, you're automatically much more attractive to a woman. Whereas, like, if you're wearing something like flip flops or Crocs, women are like, oh, that's just like, that's, you're, you may still get a girl, but you're having to fight a huge uphill battle if you're going out with Crocs on. This, nope. this is a great tip. What's, what's just one more? Okay, so, uh, um, well, if we're sticking with what you look like, oh, actually, let's go with off of what you look like. Um, where you pick up girls or where you go, where you live, the decisions you make about where you live and where you hang out have a huge impact on how successful you are with women. Basic, the basic idea is you want to find a mating market where there are, a, there are more women than men. Like a local sex ratio. I, I'm talking about even in the room, in a bar you're in, but any sort of group that you're into, whether it's picking a school, picking a city to live in, a neighborhood within a city, picking social groups, 
picking, um, you know, like what gyms to work out at. If you pick places that have more women than men, you are going to do better because people judge naturally and unconsciously judge their mating chances based on the local sex ratio, meaning the percentage of men to women. And if it's skewed in the male favor, then you are going to do better. For example, if you're in a bar and there's 10 guys and three girls, leave because those three girls have at least three guys apiece potentially that are hitting on them. So you have to compete now against all these other guys. But if you walk into a bar and it's eight girls and four guys, now, even if, every, even if, the, even if you're the lowest ranking guy in there, what you have is the, the top four guys pairing off with the top four girls, and there's now four girls that don't have a guy. See, so I, you, this, this advice I totally agree with. I always tell guys to go two things, yoga class and tango class. You're definitely going to meet girls if you go to those. If you go to one of those classes, yes. Well, tango, yoga is maybe a little different. I'm not sure, just because like I've never. I mean, if you do yoga, it's like it depends how you interact. But tango, the point of tango is to interact with women and and to talk to them. And you're always going to have more women than men there. So there's always going to be a shortage of male dance partners. So even even if it's just in that room, you are going to be two to three times to five times more attractive to women because there's a scarcity there. Anything that we don't have enough of, we value more. Hmm. Well, well, Tucker, I wanted, to, I wanted to tell the audience how you and I met, actually, which is um, a few years ago, uh, I had a book come out, and uh, one of the Naomi's, I forget if it was Naomi Klein or Naomi Wolf, some, some Naomi out there on Twitter really hated the book, and I wrote a, a post about it. And you... Um, wrote me an email and introduced yourself, and you said, um, I'm going to quote, I hate to sound like a weirdo Buddhist, but the only things that really matter in this world are the relationships you have with the people you love and the meaningful things that you do. Haters don't fit anywhere into that. Don't devote any mental space to them. And this is, these have really been, and this is now years later, this is, these have really been words that I've lived by. Like, it, it's really important not to devote mental space to the haters because that's how you get the energy to be creative is when you're not angry all the time and you must have suffered from a lot of hate when your when your books first came out i don't know i mean i know some of the stories but yes yes you know, I did. You know this you must have come to this through uh through a very difficult route really you know like people still refer to you as like a misogynist and just just for the record, I know many women who uh, owe their careers and their success to you, you know, and and who freely say so. So, you know, I just wanted to point this out that you're you're very different from the ass finished first, which is a great title, but does doesn't necessarily equal what you are. And I, and I think you've shown that throughout this whole interview here. Well, dude, thank you. I mean, that's um, it's kind of funny, man. Like I remember, I very much remember because I've been reading your stuff for maybe three to six months when you wrote that. And I remember thinking, like, this guy is so smart, and he ha- he he really like has such a great energy about him. But he gets so so down by these, like, or he gets so impacted uh, by these negative, toxic people. And the, all I was trying to do was like help out a writer that I respected. You know, like I didn't really have any, like, I wasn't trying to be some wise sage. I mean, God knows I didn't make that up, man. I've read that, you know, other places from people far wiser than me. It was just one of those things where I was like. I was like, uh, you know, this guy. If this guy could could stop focusing on these people that don't matter and focus on the people he loves and the things he knows, 
he could get a lot more out of life. I'm glad you took a lot out of it. That's that's the way I try to approach my life. I don't always succeed. God knows, but um, that's it's the way hard I when people press the exact buttons that get you. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that's why James, like I've written or uh, no, I didn't write about it this, but there was a big profile. Uh, I mean, Forbes where the writer really focused on this. I started psychoanalysis like three years ago for this exact reason because I. Like everyone has buttons, dude. I have insecurity buttons just like you do. We just have different ones. And it's like people would press those buttons and they hit and you go ballistic and you get all upset. And then what you have to realize is that those buttons don't have anything to do with those people. It has to do with stuff inside of you. So you need to like figure out what that stuff is and deal with it. And that takes time and it takes work and it takes help from somebody else. So yeah, that's, I mean, I, I get help, dude. Yeah. Well, well, this is great, and I really uh, appreciate you being the first guest on my very first show here for the James Altucher Show. And uh, again, you're you're into so many different things. You're gonna have, I'm sure, you're gonna have success with all of them. And hopefully, we can get you on the show again. I'd love to, James. Anytime, man. Okay. Thank you very much, Tucker Max. Well, this has been a great show. I'm really glad my friend Tucker Max came on the show. He's got so much stuff going on. Who would think the guy who wrote Assholes Finish First was also, would also talk about crowdfunding, all the industries that are changing, his own investments, health, the healthcare industry, his sex book sounds fascinating, and then, of course, Buddhism. So, great interview with Tucker. And I just wanted to mention again, I'm really happy you're all listening to this show. I want you to write me at altature at gmail.com. Tell me what you're worried about, what you're panicking about, what anxiety is coming out there trying to control you, trying to change the way you act, trying to prevent you from the freedom you deserve. You could find me at altitude@gmail.com or jamesaltitude.com or as Tucker mentioned, you could read my book, Choose Yourself, which I highly recommend. Uh, and of course, I recommend I'm biased. But once again, happy you're here. And I hope you join me next week for another show. We have another great show lined up with, I think, Gary Vaynerchuk is the guest. So this is James Altucher signing off on the James Altucher Show. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs>